Bruce, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man right there, Howard Lapidus, yeah, manager yeah, of the yeah, star. Once again, once again, once again, our secret bunker, bunker yes, nestled, nestled, which is a word that doesn't come up that often. No, but it does on this program uh, every week. I do like when you use it. Yeah. Here we are, nestled in our and, secret bunker. And uh, I hope our guest understands that, uh, what they're getting into. It's oh, they've been on it, they, he, it. <laughs> Anthony M. Nostopolo has been on the show it's several been on times. The show many times and, and understands that this is just another show. He knows what he's in for. He's been here too many times. If he didn't want to be here, he wouldn't be here. Oh, Anthony. Um, Anthony. And I want to be here, and I know exactly what I'm getting in <laughs> That makes you a rather ill fellow. <laughs> That's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, who probably knows more about your life than you do. Anthony M. Okay. <laughs> Not to be confused with the other Anthony DiStofano who writes books about, you know, Jesus. <laughs> yes, exactly. Saints and Jesus. Uh, I don't have that luxury. <laughs> Like, well, like, well, none of us do, Anthony. So, yeah, we got you uh, know we get three Jews and a Catholic. <laughs> if we walk into a bar, yeah, we're in a bar, Well, we are in a bar. That's right, we are. <laughs> Brand new book from Anthony M. Destafano. It's not about Abbott and Costello, but it's about the other Costello. You remember the other Costello, don't you? The great Frank Costello. Yeah. Great. Now, well, yeah, uh, Matt. Uh, Howard's been in Frank Costello's house. Have you been in Frank Costello's house, Anthony? I've been by it. I haven't been in it. Uh, but he had two houses, one on Central Park West and one in Sands Point, Long Island. I was on the one, the one uh, on Central Park West right at 72nd Street. And from his balcony, you overlook the Dakota, the famous uh, Dakota apartment building, right into John Lennon's window. That's probably why I was there. Well, yeah. It was well, I think he predates John. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, he was good and gone when I was in there, but the place was set up like he was about to come home. Uh, he wasn't coming home, but uh, it had one of those long um, dining room tables that seat, you know, 30 people. Um, and a lot of blacks and white, uh, reds and whites. Uh, it was quite... If you wanted a, uh, a mobster's house, you were designing it for, the, for film, this was it. you know how much they sold that for when he died? The answer is um, maybe 60-some-odd thousand dollars. No, you're too high. 30000 Okay, yeah. Because I was in there, I was in there because the guy that was going to buy it, I somehow was in there with him. I don't even ask. It was like 1980 or 79, whatever year it was. Um, but I think I'm not wrong. I'm pretty close to the right year. Uh, yeah, it was in the It was about 75 yeah. uh, when that went down. Well, that place, that, that place today has got to be worth several million dollars. Several. Million. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, my my house on, in Sands Point, Long Island. That that went for a song as well, and that would probably get about two million dollars today. Yeah. Well, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, on the way here today when we stopped by Albertsons to ride the little plastic ponies in front of the grocery uh, store. It was fun. <laughs> yeah, that was that's what grown men do now, <laughs> for fun. You know, we ought to post 
him doing that because we'd have a million hits in a minute. <laughs> what uh, he asked a question, which I will ask you because I can let him ask it because it's my show, and that is Earl, with 127,000 books about Frank Costello. Why is this book different from the others? What have you got that the others don't? What I have, I was able to get his FBI file. Uh, and the earlier books didn't have access to that because the FBI didn't start releasing stuff until somewhere about the 1990s. What I also have, which is unique uh, for this book, is that I was able to get access to some of his relatives. Mm. Now, Costello and his wife, they didn't have any children. But he had a whole series of first cousins twice removed uh, in the so-called Castiglia clan. That was Frank's original name. And I was able to locate them, and they were able to provide me with insight and photographs and, and uh, you know, uh, mementos that uh, really fleshed out the story uh, and got me into his, uh, his past uh, pretty deeply. Hmm. Uh, so that's why the book is different. It's different for that for that reason. The FBI files are godsend. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, in the 70s when the books were coming out about Frank, they didn't have access to that stuff. Uh, and, you know, they had his lawyer wrote a book, and I think another relative wrote a book. But they were, you know, in my mind, they just weren't able to get as complete as this book is able to get. So, Andy, take us on a little tour through those files. Well, what happens, you know, what they start really honing in on Frank in the 1930s. He had a uh, situation. Look, Frank was a big bootlegger in New York City. Uh, he had it vertically integrated. He had ship-to-shore radios. He had seaplanes. He had boats. He had speedboats. He had uh, warehouses in New York City. So he was a big bootlegger. And by the time Prohibition ended, you know, he sort of gravitated into gambling. And it was there that he really got his mark and got noticed with the FBI. Because the FBI in the 20s really was kind of uh, uh, not really functioning the way it, you know, it is today. As a, as a, um, as a, as a bootlegger, where did he stand? Um, relative to Joe Kennedy. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, well, you know, that's, that's an interesting question because Joe Kennedy, everybody thinks that Joe Kennedy, the father of the president, was involved. And it seems like that is open to question because Frank himself testified that uh, he was asked about Joe Kennedy, and he testified that Joe Kennedy, that's not Joe Kennedy from Boston, that's a guy I know in Canada, Joe Kennedy. And there was a guy in Canada who was a bootlegger that he was connected to. So it's, it's a questionable uh, relationship, and I, I kind of doubt that it was the, uh, Kennedy's father. Uh, but uh, in the pantheon of bootleggers, Frank was pretty high up. Well, uh, how, did well how, did, how did Kennedy's father make his money? I thought it was bootleg. Uh, well, he, he had he had business, you know, he did have liquor businesses, but uh, from what we understand, Frank doesn't appear to have had any connection to what Joe Kennedy was doing. Okay. Let's keep going through the file. Yeah. Okay, 1930s, and this is probably something that's going to be dear to your heart. He got to the attention of the FBI through a big jewelry heist. Well, wow. I say big. It was out of... Uh, uh, the Miami Beach area, uh, and he he got to the notice of Hoover uh, in the theft of jewels from a, a society woman down there, and uh, they looked at Frank because Frank was tied into some of the guys who were caught in the heist, and Frank was indicted for the jewelry heist. 
there was a guy by the name of Noel Scaffa, who was the insurance go-between, uh, who had had this pleasant racket where he would uh, get calls from thieves who would, uh, uh, you know, say, look, we got the jewels, uh, and he would go to the insurance company and say, okay, why don't you uh, uh, part with 30% of, of, of your policy or whatever the jewels were worth because the way the insurance worked, they were making money if they got the jewels back. They didn't have to pay 60%, they paid 30%. So but Frank got indicted on this, and he beat the case. Hmm. Scaffa did not because he got uh, convicted of perjury. And uh, uh, we go through the 30s. Frank is avoiding conviction. He got income tax indictments. He had a bootlegging indictment from the 20s. And he beat all those cases until the 1940s when Lucky Luciano was out of the picture because he got convicted and sent away. And Frank was kind of the boss of the crime family in New York City, what was the Luciano crime family. Uh, and that's when LaGuardia zeroed in on Frank and had this vendetta against him. And he sort of haunted Frank, chased his gambling operations out of New York. He went to uh, New Orleans, where he did pretty well. And then he uh, came back to uh, uh, New York uh, after LaGuardia left, and he was really nominally or in charge of the crime family that Luciano had uh, now, he and Lucky Luciano were good buddies, from what I they understand. Were. But they got some, uh, Frank got some opposition to that, didn't it? They got up, well, the, uh, the opposition Frank got was from Vito Genovese, who wanted so much to be in charge of that crime family. And there was this uneasy truce for a number of years. Uh, Genovese had to flee the country because of a murder indictment. But when he came back, he and Frank, you know, were sort of at the uh, uh, loggerheads, I guess. And they, you know, had a, a relationship that was frayed. And eventually, in 1957, uh, Genovese enticed uh, uh, Vinnie the Giganti to try to shoot Frank, and he did shoot Frank in, his, uh, in the lobby of his apartment building, the very one you were talking about earlier. Frank survived. He turned his head at the right time, and he avoided a fatal wound. But then he got the message, and he said, look, I'm going to fade out of the picture. And by about 1957, 58, he was kind of retired, in a manner of speaking. Uh, but not before the Keith Alver Committee uh, uh, raked him over the coals in those public hearings, those mm -hmm. famous public hearings in the 1950s, where Frank became the, the face of organized crime. Or the hands of organized uh, crime. <laughs> well, the hands, yes, the ballet of the hands, they call it. They wouldn't let the TV cameras photograph his face. He requested that. And they showed his hands. Although film cameras did show his face and everything else. But Frank thought it was a good move to testify, and it turned out to be a bad move because he didn't come out very well. He didn't come off very well. He looked fidgety. He looked evasive. You know, he, he was uh, uh, not admitting things that he should have admitted. And ultimately, he got a perjury indictment, an obstruction of uh, uh, contempt of Congress indictment. Well, look, if you so walk like a, a mobster and you look, act like a mobster and you look like a mobster, you're a son of a gun mobster. Well, there he was. I mean, you know, and he, and he became the face for the public because don't forget, early 1950s, uh, television was in its you know early stages, and this was one of the big national stories sure. that was televised for the first time. Yep. So people saw 
a gangster uh, on the evening news, and it, it was really was big news. I mean, uh, uh, you know, courtrooms would shut down, businesses would uh, uh, go on hiatus for, during the pendency of these uh, hearings, and Frank, of course, was the big draw. Uh, this is Mark over in the corner here. That's Mark in the corner. Get right on that microphone, Mark. Um, one well, piece of this puzzle that, that, that is puzzling me. Now, make sure I get the names right. Genovese was, con was indicted for murder and fled the country. That's right. And he came back after the indictment got dropped. That's right. Did That's he right. know that Frank was the one who got the uh, indictment dropped? Well, you know, there's all sorts of stories. And that's why they're stories, because they're good stories. Uh, I don't think he knew what happened on that, and I'm not really sure. Uh, but, you know, there is stories that maybe Frank interceded to get it dropped, but uh, it's not clear. It really isn't clear. So I'm trying and to... it didn't matter anyway. I mean, it wouldn't matter. In that world, it wouldn't matter if he did him that favor, because he wanted the power. Um, what and would motivate Frank to help him? I don't know, because and that's the open question, and if I don't know, I'm not sure that Frank would have helped him. Yeah, huh. the whole bit puzzles me about the story. Well, it's a very puzzling situation. One thing I, I wanted to mention here is, you talk about how we have the speedboats, you have the, uh, the communication system. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, to, to organize all that, you have the money to put it all together. We're talking about a major, major operation here. That's not some, like, you know, little gangster move. This is a big deal. It was a big deal. It was it was one of the biggest bootlegging operations in New York. And there were others. He worked with this guy, William Dwyer, uh, not to be confused with O'Dwyer, who became a mayor at some point. But William Dwyer, who was a racehorse aficionado and a sportsman, uh, he had his own bootlegging operation. And Frank and he worked in tandem. Uh, but they were certainly some of the biggest. There were others. There were Jewish uh, gangsters um, uh, who Lansky. worked with them. You know, look, Meyer Lansky worked with them. Uh, there was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Zwillman and some of the others. Uh, and they all kind of worked together. And that's another thing I wanted to point out. In about 1929, you see, uh, you're all familiar with... Uh, uh, Boardwalk Empire. There was a big conclave of the mob in Atlantic City that was pulled together by Johnny Torrio and Frank Costello uh, to get uh, Capone to drop his hostile combative actions in Chicago because they were all afraid that, look, we're going to get too much heat from the government if you keep killing each other in yeah. the street. So they had this big conclave in Atlantic City, all the gangsters, and they basically told Capone, look, you really got to go away for a little while. You got to go to jail. You got to take a vacation. And Capone didn't like the idea, but he agreed. And Costello was instrumental in doing that. Mm. Uh, that meeting also interesting that the old world boss leaders weren't invited. Some of the old world boss uh, I don't think Luciano showed up. Uh, I don't think um, uh, Masseria showed up, uh, and Maranzano, who was really up and coming but not a boss at that point, uh, he didn't show up. They weren't invited. Mario Costello, and I'm sure you've seen the list, uh, and the boss from Atlantic City. Yeah, they all, uh, they all had the same uh, philosophy of, if you make me money, come on board. 
And the old bosses were, you know, Sicilian only, Italian only. Yeah, guys like Mazzaria and uh, Maranzano uh, and guys before Mazzaria, the Morello gang, uh, they were of that ilk. And they, their, their problem was that they were too top-down and heavy-handed and they didn't share enough uh, until it was too late. Yeah, they wanted to hold on to the illusion of the power and the control when the money was moving elsewhere. Yeah, and then, then you know, after they, they killed Mazzari and Maranzano, Luciano, with Costello as his aide-de-camp, so to speak, um, you know, they organized the commission, the Mafia Commission, as, which is what we have today, but it really is more abundant because these, the families today are in such bad shape. Uh, they're not organized like they were. Uh, yeah, it uh, sounds like they had it down like uh, multinational corporations. Was was yeah, he had a, you know, like it was almost like a board of directors, where they set up some rules and they settled some disputes, and they were their permission was needed if you wanted to uh, kill a boss, which uh, did happen sometimes. So all in know, favor of murdering so and so, raise your hand, and they would. Um, I mean, going a little fast forward here, but was Gotti the beginning of the end of, of the, the big organizations? I, I think I think Gotti uh, I think Gotti made so many mistakes that he was probably the worst thing that happened for the mob uh, in the eighties. Explain. Uh, he got so much heat. Uh, he was thumbing his nose at the FBI. He was so flamboyant that, and he was so imprudent in what he said on some of those tapes, although I didn't know he was being taped, uh, that he opened up the door to so many other prosecutions. There was so much evidence that Gravano uh, gave uh, to the feds that, uh, uh, he, you know, it just, it just put, put attention on all the families. And, you know, let's point, point of fact, you know, Giuliani went after the Mafia Commission uh, at that time in 86. Didn't, he didn't need Gotti to go after the commission. They had done things themselves with the, the so-called Concrete Club, which was a extortion racket in the construction industry over the concrete. Uh, right. So they had that without Gotti. But Gotti, when Gotti came in, he got so much heat on that family and collaterally on some of the others, like the Bonanno crime family, for instance, uh, and somewhat Lucchese crime family, that, you know, they were just getting picked off. And it's, and it's continued up till this day. And Gotti's been out of the picture now for, what, you know, 20 years? Yeah. Uh, but once you draw heat like that, once you bring the streets home, as we say, you know, it's bad for everybody. Biggest mistake, well, Gotti. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah, and he also, I didn't think he appreciated what the FBI could do and what the FBI had in their back pocket in terms of informants. They had people very close to him for the longest time, and he wasn't aware of it. Uh, if he was aware of it, he didn't want to acknowledge it. And then, and of course, uh, he appointed people to positions of power who really weren't fit uh, to, to lead that way. Well, yeah, well, that was one of the problems, that you're dealing with a, a limited gene pool in terms of sophisticated intelligence. <laughs> Well, yeah, he wanted to be, the guy he wanted to be a gangster, and that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be like Frank Costello's public public image, but Frank Costello was more than a gangster. He wanted to be legitimate. He was like the great Gatsby, in a sense, 
of, uh, of the mob. And in fact, he lived on the opposite coast uh, coastline in uh, the North Shore of Long Island from where Gatsby's fictional home was. Gatsby never got as far as Frank Costello in terms of uh, acceptance in some of that world. But Frank, you know, Frank, you know, he tried to be legit, but really couldn't be because they wouldn't let him. Gotti didn't care about being legit. He wanted to be a gangster, and there really wasn't much else uh, that he wanted to do. And they're in the money. they're they're in the downfall. Yeah, they're in the downfall because he was spending money, uh, gambling it away, not investing it, not doing anything with it, uh, hoarding. Uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say hoarding it, but he really wasn't doing anything uh, to build any kind of legacy. He thought he was going to build a legacy, but little did he appreciate the fact that the feds were going to go after not only him, but his underboss, Sammy Gravano, and his, his counselor, consigliere, uh, Frank Lucasio. So they got everybody one scoop uh, in that December day in 1990. Uh, you know, it really was a. Uh, you got to give the FBI credit on that. They really did pull it off, and they had some very good technical wiretaps and stuff that really sort of sunk Gotti. How long did it take them? Uh, well, the FBI. Yeah. Uh, I would say they really got the green light. Well, they started looking at Gotti's crew in 1982. It was a big heroin case that they made. And this is the other thing people don't realize, that the people around Gotti, Gotti wasn't a drug trafficker, but these major people around Gotti were major heroin traffickers. And the FBI got onto them, and they built a very big case out of that. And eventually, they wiped out some of his major people. But about 82, I said, by about 86, they had a national initiative to go after Gotti. Uh, well, I would I would I wouldn't say 86. I would have to say about 85. In some of the files I've been reading, uh, you know, they really sort of were pressing the point at that point. And the, the biggest mistake the Gotti family made is they allowed somebody to do that movie. <laughs> well, I uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, I have. I saw it, and it's not a good movie, man. It's just not. Uh, I, they, they, were, they didn't know what they wanted to do with it, by view. They wanted, what do you want to be, a gangster movie? Yeah. You want to be a, 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 a adulatory kind of show? Do you want to be a, a screed against the government? What do you want to do with this movie? Well, they were it, going in 40 directions at once. And they tried to glue it together with super glue. And oh, uh, that, I mean, it was, uh, it was a massive disappointment. Um, to the ultimate. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know the events in that sure. in that time span uh, pretty well. But even at some, I was saying to myself, okay, which trial is this now? Is this 2006 or is this 2000? It was bouncing. This movie. I mean, we can sit here and, and, and dump on the movie, which it deserves. Be <laughs> uh, you're right because it was going. It was bouncing back and forth from era to era and person to person, and trying to identify guys that uh, you'd never see again, and so it didn't matter. And uh, Travolta was trying to be Gotti. He was trying, you know, he was trying to posture, it seems. I mean, it seems to me that and they also avoided certain things, like this big narcotics connection I was telling you about yeah. that became uh -huh. such an issue with Angelo Ruggiero. They didn't even mention, you don't hear the word drugs mentioned in that movie. Yeah. They don't want you to sour your impression of the fellow. <laughs> oh, well, uh, the public uh, the public spoke, and they voted on that movie they and did, said, yeah. uh, forget that. 
Um, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, it was getting zeros. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not a good sign. No, not a good sign at all. But it was crap. I saw it the first night because I was just uh, totally interested in what they did. It took them eight years to put this thing together. It started with a great uh, friend of Outlaw Radio, Marty Angles. Uh, he's the guy that got the original rights and tried to make this thing uh, work. And he was posthumously uh, credited on the movie, but it took them eight years to put this piece of crap together. And uh, they should have—they want their—forget getting their money back. They should get their eight years back. <laughs> get the years back. Yeah, oh, yeah. They, they get those yeah. years back. All of those I guys. think it was about in—I'm um, trying to recollect now from my own brilliant manuscript— uh, <laughs> Must have been in the uh, let's see uh, late '80s, uh, late '80s. Uh, Gotti and uh, uh, the fellow we call Mr. Stan were out having a drink together, and uh, an FBI guy comes up to, to Gotti and uh, with his card. Uh, he said, "Hi, I'm uh, Agent Schmendrick." <laughs> Whoever he was, goes, "I just thought I'd let you know there's a hit out on you." <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. And then he turns to Mr. Stan and says, here, have one of my cards. And, <laughs> and Mr. Stan figures, well, if they're going out of their way to hand me a card, maybe they're trying to pay attention to me, and maybe I'll pack my bags and, and get out down. Yeah, which Stan was a master. This this is a guy, Anthony, that is, is 83, 84 years old. living 80, on the, 80 right now. Yeah. Living on the beach in where, Romania <laughs> or something? Never been caught. One of the great jewel thieves of all time. And knew all these guys. And his timing was most impressive. He yeah. would, well, he, his timing must be very impressive because he hasn't gotten caught. And he's still living a free man. Yeah. And, and always will. He's retired. And he's just not going back. Well, we don't know for sure if he's retired. you got to figure, here's the greatest heist master who he and his son trained the guys with the Pink Panthers now right. over there. And now he's over there. Oh, Who's to say he isn't so planning I'm going to say there's probably some insulation around him. <laughs> but there's some communication somehow that gets out. He's, uh, you know, once... Once a thief, always a thief. Uh, and, uh, you know, why am I saying all these things today? But but, uh, <laughs> but it's true. It's true. Back. Let's get back to um, uh, our friend, uh, uh, Mr. Costello. Uh, and you, you, were, you were making your way through the FBI file for us before we got so uh, distracted with, because it's easy to get distracted with the, the, this topic, that's for sure. Let's go back to, uh, back to your narrative. Yeah, well, you know, he got shot in 57. Uh, he kind of eased himself out of the picture. But the FBI still paid attention to him because things were happening in the mob that they thought he knew about. And they were the, the file sprinkled with interview reports uh, in which they, you know, talked to Frank. He was very chatty. You know, he would talk to them. He wouldn't say very much. Uh, and they were, eventually they saw that Although he was hanging out with all the old gangsters and having dinner and lunch and meeting him at the Biltmore and the uh, and the various hotels and going to the, uh, the steam rooms, uh, he he really didn't give them anything. So the files eventually began to say, well, he seems to be out of the day-to-day -day management of things, and he's really kind of a. Uh, uh, I forget the word they used, but they said uh, uh, not, uh, no longer of law enforcement interest and no longer, uh, uh, you know, somebody we have to worry about being dangerous. Because for so many years, the files had a, a legend on it saying, you know, armed and dangerous. That's because of an old pistol conviction he had back in 1915 or somewhere around there. 
Well, let's, uh, I got a question for you. The uh, the King of the Jews is one book is entitled about Arnold Rothstein. Uh, oh yeah, that's a great book, by the way. Fascinating. Uh, I don't know the guy who wrote it, but that's irrelevant right now. Uh, what did he? What kind of influence did uh, Rothstein have? On, uh, well, Rothstein of... supposedly gave some of the initial funding to Costello for his uh, bootlegging activity, but then it became the past, and, and Costello testified to this, that he gave Rothstein money. In fact, there was a loan, an IOU from Rothstein uh, uh, to Costello uh, when Rothstein was, was shot dead uh, uh, in, you know, in the hotel in Manhattan. Right. Uh, so there was like a two-way street with them. Rothstein it was the initial, I think, font uh, or spigot for money, but then eventually it turned the other way. What kind of money are we talking about? Um, amounts, you know, in well, you know, look, you're bearing in mind you're talking about the 20s and 30s. Of course. So if if you if if the you know the bootlegging operations that Costello had. Uh, they were probably getting them, uh, you know, making them, you know, $20, $20 million a year, sir. Oh. But back then, that was a lot of money. That's yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a billion dollars. Money now, sir. Yeah. What would that be worth and now? Probably $800 million, seriously. Easily. Yeah, I have, a, I have a comparative chart somewhere in the book. Yeah. And I'm at a loss to... Uh, but it's good that uh, it's in the book. That's uh, Seriously, that's, uh, that, that'll open... Now, what happens to all this money? When uh, when Frank uh, Costello retired, and was no longer considered armed and dangerous, how much loot was he actually sitting on? Well, they found nothing. Nothing? They found nothing. Because he figured out a way to take it with him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Put in a FedEx in package. <laughs> there it's was in no the FedEx. In in uh, Queens. Um... And that was the thing that got him caught, by the way, with the big income tax case, that mausoleum, the one that sits off the Grand Central Parkway. Uh, he had, uh, uh, there was a check his wife wrote, like for $5 or something for a florist. And the FBI agents, being very diligent, uh, the, actually the IRS, traced the money uh, to the cemetery, to the stonemason who made the mausoleum, and they saw it was all in cash. And they started to put together a, a net worth case against Frank Costello. Ah. This was very controversial at the time. I could imagine. Uh, but come back to the question of how much uh, the bootleggers were making. Yeah. Um, they were probably pulling in, you know, they had bank accounts of like $21 million uh, uh, in today's money. They could have so retired. They making. They could have retired, exactly, but they didn't. But they didn't because why didn't they? Why didn't they retire? Yeah. They well, could. You know, they, had all the, they had the money, they, uh, more than enough money to take them and maybe three generations through the rest of their lives. They had the money, but now they still have the Jones to do it. Well, so part of the problem was that the IRS did get some of the money from some of these guys. This guy, Dwyer, who was uh, Frank's cohort in the bootlegging operation, Oh, he got fleeced by the IRS. They went after him. They found bank, you know, he was, he was claiming income of $11,000 a year, uh, and he had bank accounts in, in the millions. You know, where does it come from? Right. So they went after him, and they really basically stripped him uh, of his money, so he really didn't have any. Costello, interestingly, I think he hid some of his money. Uh, he didn't use banks. He had a safe uh, strong box in his house 
where he kept maybe $100,000 in cash. His wife probably had some. I'm sure she did. And he spread it around. Uh, he also had businesses, legitimate businesses, don't forget. Frank wanted to be legit. Yeah, that's so right. He, he wanted to be legit. So, what, what, so tell us about those businesses. What, what, what was he doing? Oh, okay. We'll start, you know, in the beginning he had a, uh, a Cupid doll. Uh, oh, hell, that's uh, a moneymaker. <laughs> no, nah, that what it didn't turn out to be. But uh, he had uh, auto sales. Uh, he had his wife had, was involved in some television and radio operations. Figures. And also oil and gas leases. He had a, he had a, a, a meat purveyor and meat markets in New York, too. Meat markets? Well, he may have, yeah. I mean, there were other businesses that, you know, that were sprinkled around in his past. Uh, he had the business in the 1919, somewhere about 1920, where he had the punch card business. And, you know, that was a business where you, uh, it was almost like a lottery in a sense. It's almost, it's kind of like gambling, where you push little right. stylus to push something out of a, a board and you'd get a, maybe get a prize. There was a guy that had a ring made that was the exact dimensions of the punches. <laughs> he would whack the board with his ring to get those things out. It's pretty clever. Oh, really? Pretty but clever, right? You've, 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 but you've taken this journey. Where, and maybe this is an unfair question, but the heck with it. I'm going to ask it anyway. Where do you think the Costello money went? Well, I think... Um, he gave some of it to, to to relatives. I think the government got physical assets the government got in the end. He had a tax bill of a million dollars when he died, and they took the apartment and they took the house in Sands Point to satisfy that. And that was maybe, you know, 8 to 10% of what he owed. The money, I, I think he either, he either spent it, gave it to relatives, or he gave it to some of his uh, uh, his friends. But he wasn't in good shape in the end, financially, it seems, because he was asking people for money. Uh, was, he, was, he, was he in this for the money in the beginning, or was it the action? I think it was both. Uh, I think he wanted the money, but I also think he wanted the action and the status that came with the action. Don't forget, you look at the 1930s and 40s, he was one of the Damon Runyon characters. Right. Inspirations. Like they, Runyon wrote this character, Dave the Dude, which was supposedly modeled on Costello, like a suave, lady-killing kind of guy. And, uh, you know, Costello had his looks. He had, you know, if you like that kind of uh, dark-haired, swarthy kind of guy with a uh, uh, Cyrano Bergerac uh, sort of nose. Um, but... Uh, it was, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting period, and the, the street, meaning Broadway, was so alive, and he was part of that, and it had, it had to have been an incredible high, but he also wanted to be somebody who was legitimate and had, had something to do and not just be a thief. That's why I'm curious about the title of your book, which I find interesting in light of what you just said. The book is called Top Hoodlum. What do you think he would think of that title? Oh, he'd probably be very angry. <laughs> he'd probably, you know, that Top Hoodlum comes from J. Edgar Hoover's Top Hoodlum program. 
Hoover, uh, Hoover didn't label these guys as mafiosi. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he did. He, he called them top hoodlums. So everybody who was of this ilk was stamped top hoodlum, and he was part of the top hoodlum program. And the files, the FBI files I look at, sometimes denote uh, top hoodlum Frank Costello, you know, top hoodlum designation Frank Costello. Now, didn't so he have a meeting with J. Edgar? I mean, what do they play dress up? What's he going to do with J. Edgar? <laughs> well, the, the, what I've heard was that, you know, he was getting racing tips from uh, Costello. And the mob supposedly had some dirt on Costello. But, you know, I haven't tracked that down. Uh, frankly, I had enough of my hands to do with uh, just Costello. Uh, you mean Costello had dirt on Hoover? Uh, I probably did. Well, come on. A cross-dressing <laughs> transvestite. Those are the best kind. How do you know all about this, Mark? I was there. Thank you. I was there. He was the seamstress. So, so Costello uh, met his end when and how? He met his end, well, you know, in a very peaceful way. Uh, he died of a heart ailment in February of 1973. Uh, he died in his own bed, such as was in a hospital, with his wife Loretta by his side. He died peacefully in a sense. I mean, he didn't get shot. He wasn't didn't disappear, which was the, uh, the the fate of some of the other top gangsters of that period. He didn't find and he died. You know, he, he, he ran out of gas, and um, he had a very sedate funeral. There weren't a lot of people there. You know, don't forget, he was probably 15 years out of power at that point. How old was he? So, uh, I believe I had him as 83. Okay. I have him. A good age. Yeah. Should be lucky if I make that. And he was going to write a book, believe it or not. He was going to write. He was in the midst of sitting down with Peter Moss, uh, you know, of Serpico fame and uh, uh, the Valachi papers. They had a, They worked out a deal. Frank had talked to him. They were going to write a book. Huh. This was going to be the unvarnished truth, so to speak. So what happens? Costello dies. He couldn't and write the book without any. They didn't have any tapes. I looked around. I really looked around for tapes that Moss may have made, but he didn't make any tapes. He made a three- or four-page memo, uh, which he thought was the framework for the book and the story. So I was able to locate that and put it in the book. Talk, talk about and, that. Uh, talk about that memo. Well, about the memo? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it was in Moss's papers are in Columbia University. And, um, you know, he, has, he, had, he, he was a very prolific writer. Uh, he wrote, uh, you know, a variety of, uh, of uh, uh, works, uh, Serpico being one of them, uh, the uh, uh, Valachi papers being the main one, because that was what really gave him a grounding in organized crime. So, you know, he had cachet, and it seems as though he and Costello got together, and they decided that we're going to write, and the memo, and I'm looking through the book here to see if I can pull it up, uh, it's about three or four pages, and it's kind of like a pitch letter uh, that Moss may have been putting together for the... Uh, 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 the, author, the, the publishers, and he said, he, I told Frank that he was a legitimate figure in American history, and he meant it. Um, and, you know, he, he, he would say what he envisioned the book doing 
was it would be in the third person. And from it would go from his early days in East Harlem as an immigrant to prohibition, the formative days of the mafia, and, uh, and his involvement in politics. And of course, Costello, Costello was a, a power behind Tammany Hall. And he also wanted to draw out Costello about his relationships with uh, Anastasia, Adonis, uh, Maya Lansky, Lucky Luciano. And he seemed to, you know, have a lot of respect for Costello, and he considered him what he said was a man's man. So they hit it off, and they were going to do this. And uh, uh, then he died. Uh, our friend uh, Punch, the uh, Diamond Heist guy, just sent me a message. He's really enjoying the program, by the way. And he wanted to ask you, uh, uh, dropped a couple names here. Uh, Joe Coffey and Carmen Lamber uh, Lamb uh, Lambertozzi. Embracing. Yeah, Joe, Joe, Joe Coffey uh, was a NYPD detective who made his mark, so to speak, uh, investigating organized crime, uh, arrested Castellano, Paul Castellano, and uh, did a number of other big cases. Uh, he died about three years ago, Joe did. Uh, I talked to him over the years. He was trying to make a movie. Uh, and I don't know where that, that was when he died. Uh, Carmine Lombardozzi was one of the uh, powers on the, uh, the waterfront uh, in New York City. And, um, uh, you know, Coffee had no connection that I can think of to Costello because I think, the, you know, Costello died in 73. Coffee was... You know, an up-and-coming uh, uh, detective or a cop at that point, but he wasn't really anything of, uh, of, of great note. But Lombardozzi was a uh, uh, power on the docks, uh, and, and of course he passed away. And he was one of the uh, sort of legendary characters uh, uh, in New York City mafia history. Carmine was. Uh, you know, the, you go back, there were a lot of great characters out of that period. And I'm talking, you're probably ending, you know, somewhere around uh, late 1970s. Um, of, and, uh, of, of all of these characters, uh, Costello aside, who who is the most fascinating to you? Okay. Um, there were a couple. I would have to say, um, I would have to say Luciano was one of them, uh, but I also think uh, um, uh, Carlo Gambino is another. Uh, he was another one who died in his bed. Uh, uh, who who, who, who are the guys out of Niagara Falls? Say again? Uh, the guys out of Niagara Falls. Uh, there was a big, big family out of Pasadena. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. There, they were. Yeah, the Bonanno related. Uh, Joe Bonanno, I have to say, is another one. Of course, there have been books written about him. But he was another one who was uh, uh, a fascinating character. So the Magadinos uh, owned a funeral home in Niagara Falls, and they were uh, famous for the double coffin. The double coffin? Yeah. Plus, you can't get out. All right, is that, is, well, that, is that one of these New York alligator in the subway tales? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. 
What's a double cat? What's a double cat? Well, you uh, you put, double casket, right? Right. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. They, 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 yeah, I know. They're trying to hide somebody, so they put them in a casket, uh, and they have somebody that's legitimately dead uh, above it, and they bury it, and the guy's gone. Well, that's, that's a story that's been kicking around for a while. Um, uh, Bonanno, I think, had a uh, had a funeral business for a while. Um, Frankie Yale. There's another character, but he's really out of the 1920s. He's kind of fascinating. Uh, he had a funeral business. Uh, yeah, they were, the funeral they were. business was a, you know, uh, an occupation for a number of these guys. Well, it made you, sense. You don't run out of customers. Oh, exactly. Right. <laughs> Pardon me. Yep. That's. Uh, no, I know. I, I grew up around there, so the Magadinos. Uh, uh, I was very aware as a kid. What crime family were you linked to, Howard? Uh, uh, the Lapidus crime family. <laughs> what you, mar <laughs> you married into? A uh, yeah, in Boston. Um, uh, I just went blank. Uh, Westies? No. Uh, no they, they operated. They, the place that they operated out of still is there. Uh, it was Mike, Am um, Mike Angelo. Um, Angelo, yeah. yeah, that's a familiar name. Yeah, they, well, I mean, they ran. Names, you know, there's so many names yeah. that you come across in doing this kind of work and doing these books that you know you get you, you you're going to need a computer program to keep it all straight. Years ago, when I was starting out doing this as a young cup reporter, you know, there were that not that many names you were getting into, but gradually, you know, as your, as your knowledge increases, you know, the names are just sort of you know, cascading and. It's, Sometimes it's hard to keep them straight. Uh, I can understand that. Well, yeah, plus, they keep killing each other. This is one well, thing that always bothered me about the uh, the mob, is this thing of murdering each other. Well, that's how they police themselves. That was the know? control. That's ab that was the absolute control. Uh, and that's the how fear. they police themselves. Uh, the, you know, it's fear. fear. Of course, you gotta, you got to be afraid of getting killed, the next person to be killed. Right. Um... And that's the way it was. Yep. That's now, people who were people who were into that life, they knew that there's only so many ways their life can go if they are a dedicated mafioso mobster. They're either going to wind up shot in the back of the head by their best friend, <laughs> or uh, you know they're going to be in prison. What are the what well, there's, are the a, there's an old saying. Um, uh, you know, only a friend can hurt you. Yeah. Uh, if you're in the business and you're in the mob, it's going to be a friend. Now, you mentioned Carmine Lombardozzi. I picked up an old, old file just now where he was at the Appalachian meeting uh, back in 1957. And he was, uh, yeah, a stevedore on the Brooklyn docks. And uh, he was affiliated with all these all these guys, Carmine. He was a really big power on the docks. Fulton Fish Market, too, is from what I recall. Where the money, you go where the money is. Or wherever it was, right? I mean, Prohibition uh, must have been a godsend to these guys. Who's that? Prohibition was a godsend to these guys. Oh, it was, it was the thing that was steroids for the mob. You know, it's like... Yeah, you know, there was a, a willing, ready, large market with the public for booze. You know, they didn't. People didn't care about prohibition. It was probably one of the worst you know, national policies uh, that ever come out of Congress. But there was a ready market wherever you went, and you know, they say there was 
estimates about the speakeasy in New York was anywhere from fifteen to thirty thousand. Um, that's an enormous market. What's the, was so well, it's the same today. That's why you have that group, Law Enforcement Against Prohibitions. It's the same thing with the other uh, intoxicants. You know, if there weren't so much money in corruption, they'd be legal. You know, the one thing, one thing about these guys is they're fascinating. They are fascinating, and that's undoubtedly what kept you going, is the fascination. Yeah, and I, th I, think, you're, I think you're right. I think, you know, like I, we get jaded about this. We said, oh, it's another, you know, another character, another mafiosi, but people are interested. Uh, they are interested. I, my, one of my editors once said to me, he thinks the, the mafia, the mafia story, the mafia genre, is, is like the, the Western genre, of, you know, for, for so many years, years ago, where you have, you know, sort of good and evil uh, battling it out, characters who uh, are nefarious and questionable and uh, pushing the, the frontier of, uh, of crime. Uh, you know, it's a morality tale that, you know, people relate to. So it may be like that, I and mean, I have to think more about that, but uh, it was an interesting analogy. Well, it seems to me that as we had uh, what, uh, Al Capone's niece on here a few times, because all they were doing was giving the people what they wanted. You know, they wanted a booze, they gave a booze. They want prostitution, you had a little sex, sure, I'll take that. Well, Thank that's you. still going on. And they just give the people what they want. There's zero it, news. It's there. like, I read a report, uh, a federal uh, DEA, that they were so upset, as fast as we make a drug illegal is how fast the chemists find another way of doing, giving people a drug that they enjoy. And it wasn't that it was harmful. <laughs> it was that people enjoyed it. That's what we've got to stop. Well, you know, it, it's right. They're giving people what they want. On the other hand, they're also taking. I mean, some of these extortion rackets. Oh, that's so know, good. They're, they're not giving people what they want. They're taking. I'm not a big fan of extortion, by the way. Uh, uh, not Earl, any of us Remember the $20 you owe me. Thank you. Just trying to extort that money out of it? Yeah, well, it's 40 <laughs> bucks to me, okay? <laughs> yeah. I owe you more than 40 bucks. Easily. Um... Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, bro, easily. Yeah, 75. Uh, it is 75. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, Anthony, the book, let's let's talk about Top the, Hoodlum. Top Hoodlum. Uh, uh, available now? Available now at the usual, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, other fine bookstores. Uh, uh, it's, on, you know, available not only in book form, but on, I guess, the electronic version, the e-book. And also audio. You know, people sometimes buy the audio versions. I like the I audio. I have an audio copy yeah. for my car. So. Yeah, there you go. It's, so it's, it's available. It's out there. Uh, there are several things about Frank that we take for granted now, but at the time were quite innovative and counterintuitive to the old guard. Uh, how, did, how did Frank organize everything that made things different? Well, Frank, um, how did he do that? Well, I think he saw uh, well, he saw the potential in things like using airplanes, radio, ship-to-shore radio. This is what we're talking about bootlegging. But he also saw the the benefits of political connections, and he molded them in New York City, and he became uh, a person 
who was powerful in democratic politics in an unofficial way in Can New York City. So he, he became, he saw the potential for that working to his advantage. The, uh, the business of him wanting to legitimize, uh, you know, we always, I, I refer to The Godfather as the greatest mob movie ever, and the story is incredible, but it, it grabbed from reality. Uh, and in The Godfather, he always saw them becoming a legitimate family. Is that where that came from, that storyline? Of Frank wanting uh, to go legit? Uh, I, I think to some extent, you know, look, Puzo once said in an interview that I read that uh, the inspiration for The Godfather was his mother, uh, Puzo's mother, meaning that the, she, the way she carried on, the way she talked to people. But I think in terms of, in terms of the story, uh, the character, I think is a composite of Costello, uh, uh, Gambino, and, and, and Joe Profacci. Um, so to the extent that Costello strives to be legitimate, as did Profacci and the other Gambino, I think that's where this comes from uh, in The Godfather, that, that kind of But they really, they really did want to become legitimate and get out of it. Well, I think Frank did. Yeah. Yeah, certainly I think Frank did. The others I can't speak to. Right. I always like Mario Puzo's statement where he said, if I would have known The Godfather was going to be such a hit, I would have written a better book. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, actually. Well, how do you, you know... You never so, know. You never know which you, you book is... You just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Coppola, um, went, uh, after The Godfather, a studio asked him to, to go uh, and take a class in script writing. <laughs> no, hang on, hang on. This is, you know, and so he went to UCLA... Uh, for, uh, take closer. a class in script writing and the instructor got out and said okay we're going to talk about how to write a script and we're going to use this go. script because it's perfect and out comes the godfather and he got <laughs> down. so where do you go from there yeah. yeah what do you do hey what's your best selling book um Gosh, you know, the first book I wrote, the, the, the Last Godfather, still is selling and still kicking out some royalties. Uh, the best one, gosh, you know, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, this is just out. Uh, Costello is just out. Uh, I would say, um, I would say possibly The Big Heist. Uh, the That's last a good book. book. That's a good book. Yeah. What a good, good for you on that one. Now what? I got, I got to change the topic totally in our last few minutes here. Totally off, different topic entirely. This new, being as you know a lot about human trafficking. Right. I think this SOPA, whatever the hell it is, law they came up with recently. You know what I'm talking about? Now, give me a, a brief. Summary this is where, if you have a newspaper and you run an ad that you shouldn't run because the people placing the ad are being dishonest, you can take the blame for it if you're the newspaper. Well, how do you know? Uh, which, yeah, that's a damn good question. How this thing has gotten any legs to it, I don't know. 
but it has just raised hell in the uh, sex industry, in the adult industry, terribly. And uh, I just kind of wondered if you were familiar with it and knew the hell people were going through trying to place ads. Thanks for coming and visiting with us. Anthony, we'll, uh, we'll do this again, please. Uh, it is always fascinating to hear your take on this. Always fun. Top Hoodlum is the name of the book by Anthony M. Destapano. He's not the guy who writes the Jesus books. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. Hey, Burl. Not Burl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence Live in the Lightning Up Lounge, right here on Allen Radio Live.com.